0: Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything foreign policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts.
1: Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. This week, we're discussing meta-ethics and the issues surrounding morality. To help us unpack meta-ethics, we interviewed Bart Strömer, a world-leading professor of philosophy from the University of Groningen.
2: So one thing I'm thinking about right now is whether maybe this unbelievable error theory in meta-ethics uh, might
1: help us to say something useful. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to Bart Strummer.
3: You're interested in error theory in normative judgment. How did you come to become interested in in this kind of disagreement?
2: I guess when I entered philosophy, I was most interested in political philosophy. So I I originally started out as an economics student, uh, and then I moved into political philosophy. And... um, I guess when I did that, it really bothered me that it it, it sort of wasn't clear to me uh, whether there were any facts of the matter about what justice is, say, or what what rights people have and so on. So even though initially I was interested more in political issues, I I gradually moved into more foundational philosophical philosophical issues. And that's how I became interested in in, uh, meta-ethics, which is the area of philosophy that asks foundational questions about ethics. And I guess sort of the, the holy grail of meta-ethics is the question, um, is morality objective in some way or is it subjective in, in some way? And uh, obviously to answer that question, you have to try to be really clear uh, what you mean when you call something objective or subjective. So a large part of meta-ethics is about those sorts of issues. So when, when do we have objectivity? What exactly is required for objectivity? Uh, so that, that was what I was initially interested in. And I guess I was initially uh, more attracted to another view in uh, meta-ethics, which is known as realism. So realism says that there are actually facts of the matter about what's right and what's wrong and what people have reasons to do and so on. Um, but um, I guess after having been a committed realist for quite a few years, I became to doubt more and more that we could actually make sense of this. And so that's how I gradually moved into uh, an error theory in, in metaethics, And so the, the error theory is a view that says that um, uh, moral judgments, so thoughts about what's right and wrong, what people have reason to do, what we should do, what our obligations are, and so on. Uh, so the error theory says that those judgments are uh, sort of attempts to represent the world as being a certain way. So they uh, ascribe properties to things in the world. So they say of things in the world that they're right or wrong or obligatory and so on. Uh, But then the error theory says, well, actually, uh, those properties don't actually exist. So there is no such thing as wrongness or permissibility or obligation. uh, And therefore, all moral judgments are false. And then what I did was, well, I I thought, well, actually, the arguments for that sort of theory generalize beyond moral judgments, I now think. And they also apply to what philosophers call uh, other normative judgments. So... Uh, That means not just um, uh, thoughts about what's right and wrong and what's morally obligatory and so on, uh, but also thoughts about what there's reason to do in general, what there's reason to believe, what's rational, and so on. Uh, So that's how I came to defend uh, an error theory about all normative judgments rather than just moral judgments. Uh, The other thing I believe about the error theory is that we can't actually believe this very general error theory. So that's another thing I've I've argued for. Um, And the reason for that is that um, uh, this very general error theory applies to all normative judgments. So it also applies to judgments about reasons for belief. So this very general error theory says that there's actually no reason to believe that error theory. Um, So in order to believe that very general error theory, you would have to believe that there's no reason to believe the error (laughs) theory. And that is something that I think we can't do. So I think we can't have a belief and at the same time fully and consciously and explicitly believe that there's absolutely no reason to have that belief. Um, So, I think we can't believe the error theory, and what that means is that the truth of the error theory isn't going to have any effect whatsoever on how we make uh, moral decisions. So, we should make moral decisions, I think, in the way we've always done. I don't believe the error theory myself either, so I think we should just... um, You know, look at the pros and cons of the different options, weigh them up and come to a decision about what what the best thing to do is or what the right thing to do is.
3: But at the end of the day, leave some place for uncertainty about believing that this is the right thing to do.
2: Absolutely. But I think that is uh, something that anybody should do, really. So a lot of realists would also say, I think... Uh, that you should never be too sure about your moral opinions. And in fact, a lot of realists would say, well, we are the people who can really explain why you shouldn't be too sure about your moral opinions because there are facts of the matter out there, and so you might get them wrong. Um, So that is something I think that uh, anybody working in meta-ethics would want to preserve, that there is room for uncertainty. Um, But then again, um, if, like me, you think that uh, the best arguments in meta-ethics seem to show that this error theory is true, maybe that's an additional reason for some modesty uh, as to whether you've got things right. Even though you don't believe the error theory, you might, you might get close to believing the error theory in certain ways. So that might be an, an additional reason to be a bit modest about whether you've got things right.
3: How does that um, affect politics? Because you were in, at first interested in yes, political yeah, philosophy, yeah, right? Yeah,
2: yeah. I'm not sure, actually. That's something I'm thinking about right now. So um, so one thing I'm interested in is whether... Um, so there's, there's this famous uh, philosopher in political philosophy, John Rawls, who uh, defended a distinctive form of uh, liberalism, which asks citizens to bracket certain opinions that they might have about the good life. And I guess one live debate in political philosophy is whether that presupposes a certain kind of skepticism about the good life and maybe about morality in general, and whether that kind of skepticism then goes on to undermine the kind of political view that Rawls defended. So one thing I'm thinking about right now is whether maybe this unbelievable error theory in meta-ethics uh, might help us to say something useful um, uh, in defense of the kind of liberalism that Rawls wanted to defend. But I should say I'm not at all sure whether that is going to work because obviously the danger is always going to be if you defend anti-realism uh, about something uh, normative, um, it's very hard to move from there to some form of liberalism or tolerance because liberalism or tolerance are also going to be, you know, it's going to be the claim that we should be liberals and we should be tolerant and that's going to be another normative claim that will be undermined if your if anti-realism is, is true. Uh, so that's a very difficult thing to... to um, um, to carry out and I'm not at all sure that I'll be able to do it but that's something I'm, I'm thinking about at the moment.
3: And um, what what is your research focusing at the moment?
2: Well at the moment uh, so I, I've, uh, um, I've, I've written a, a book in defense of the error theory and arguing that we can't believe the theory so one thing I'm doing right now is um, responding to challenges that people have made to the arguments in the book and also thinking a bit further about certain premises in the arguments that I thought didn't need to be defended, but that I now see do need some additional defense. So that's one thing that I'm doing. Could
3: you give examples
2: of... um... One premise is... um, So in the book, I assume that the normative supervenes on the descriptive in a certain way. And what that means is that there can't be any changes in the normative status that actions have. So there can't be any changes in their rightness or wrongness and so on. Um, if those changes are not accompanied by certain non-normative changes. So, for example, if an action that is right, uh, if that action is to become wrong, then there must be some other change in the world that makes it the case that the action that used to be right is now now wrong. Um, So I used to assume that that was just completely uncontroversial, but there are now philosophers who are challenging that assumption in, in very... Um, Well, I'm not convinced by the challenge, but it's obviously something that I need to think more about. So that's one of the things I'm I'm working on now.
3: Um, Have you recently changed your mind about an idea?
2: Well, I guess it would be this this supervenience idea. I mean, the thing is, so it's a technical philosophical notion, but if you spell it out in a non-philosophical, intuitive way, it just seems totally obvious, right? So how can an action that is right become wrong without some other change in the world. It can't just be a bare change in in rightness or in wrongness. Uh, So I used to think that was obvious, and uh, as a result of reading what people have said about this, I've changed my mind, and I now think that that really needs needs defense. Um, And that happens a lot in philosophy. So if you you try to do philosophy well, then you'll have to pay attention to what other people are saying, and you have to read their work, and um, uh, it will happen quite often that... um, Maybe you don't completely change your mind about a broad topic, but you will change your mind about, you know, how obvious something is, whether something needs defence, whether a certain argument works or doesn't work. So that that happens quite a bit.
3: And um, if you were to choose one classic philosopher um, that has really influenced you, who would that be?
2: Uh, so do you mean like, um, can it be a reasonably contemporary philosopher? Or? Yeah. Right. Okay. So so the the, the philosopher who really. Um, made me think that I wanted to be a philosopher myself was Derek Parfit, so he was a philosopher at Oxford. Uh, He died a few years ago. Um, And as an undergraduate, I read his book, Reasons and Persons, and that made a huge impression on me. Um, Not so much for the conclusions that he reached, but for the way he reached those conclusions. So Reasons and Persons is a really big book but it's full of really detailed arguments and he's engaging with every possible objection that there could be to, to the view that he's defending. Uh, so that made a huge impression on me, but not only that, also the way in which he, he, he did it. So it's very well written, it's, um, it's, it's sort of pared down to the essentials, but in a way that also makes it engaging and, and fun to, to read. So that that's... He's probably the philosopher who made, made the biggest impression on me. I mean, just his written work made a huge impression on me. Philosophy has become, I think, a very cooperative sort of enterprise, so often it's a certain debate that is interesting, where people are making interesting contributions. Yeah, I mean, in philosophy, it is, it's about the arguments, and it shouldn't be about... Um, we shouldn't single out particular people as sort of... I mean, obviously, some philosophers are better than others, and if you look back at the past, then there are certain people who've had a huge influence, so we can do that. But if we look at contemporary philosophers right now, it's also very hard for us to say, right now, who's going to be remembered in 100 years' time. We just just can't tell.
3: Yeah. Um, There's this um, uh, recent famous study that showed that um, ethics professors are not necessarily more ethical in their uh, daily life than other people. Does that apply to meta-ethics as well? And is that because ethics professors are actually more like scientists rather than preachers? I don't
2: know. I mean, so meta-ethics is really quite a different area from normative ethics. So meta-ethics is really theoretical philosophy applied to, you know, what is ethics and is ethics objective and so on. So uh, I'm not sure if there's been any research into whether meta-ethicists are more or less ethical than other people. But I I would expect that to be not much difference, really. Um, and when it comes to normative ethics, I mean, there is a certain thing that I notice when I teach normative ethics, which is that um, if you teach it to students by just telling them, well, here's one theory, utilitarianism; here's another theory, Kantian ethics; and here's another theory, virtue ethics, and you just give them these different options, um, and it's sort of, and, and they're they're quite theoretical options. That tends to maybe encourage a certain kind of skepticism, so that what they might take away is, well, here are these philosophers, and they all disagree, so there's probably no fact of the matter. Whereas if you teach ethics in a way that applies it more to real, real-world real issues, more applied issues, uh, then most students will have strong opinions about that and won't at all be inclined to think that this is all subjective or relative and it doesn't really matter. Um, so that might be... I mean, if it's true, I'm not sure if it's really true, but if it's true that, um, that there's no difference, then uh, maybe that's partly because of the way normative ethics gets taught. I mean, it would be interesting, for example, to do a study that just focuses on people who do applied ethics and see if there's any... Uh, if, if their behavior is any better than other people's, and maybe it is. Doing uh, applied ethics or normative ethics just very naturally gives rise to questions in metaethics. So in applied ethics or normative ethics, you'll notice that uh, people disagree, so they might have different opinions about whether something is right or wrong. Um, and that gives rise to the question, well, is anybody really right here? And uh, if anyone's really right... How do we know? And if someone's really right here, what makes that the case? Is that something in the world? Is it something about our attitudes? So those are questions that arise very naturally because obviously even in applied ethics, we do disagree about what the right thing to do is. Uh, and so those questions uh, need to be addressed, I think, in an, in an ethics course.
3: Yeah. And you yourself... Used to be a, a moral yes, realist, yes. but now have given up on that position.
2: Yes, yeah, but I haven't become an error theorist because I think the view is unbelievable, so I don't believe it myself either. So what? So the view I actually, um, um, so the view I actually hold now is that is that it, it depends on which arguments I'm considering. So when I consider the arguments against um, uh, expressivism, so the view that denies that moral judgments are beliefs. Um, then I'm more inclined to be a realist. And when I uh, consider the arguments against realism, I'm sort of in the background more inclined to be an expressivist. So I sort of cycle through the different alternatives to the error theory, uh, depending on which arguments I'm considering at, at that time.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers.